The Secret of Success In every chapter of this book, mention is made of the money-making secret that has made fortunes for the exceedingly wealthy men whom I have carefully analyzed over a long period of years. The secret was first brought to my attention by Andrew Carnegie. The canny, lovable old Scotsman carelessly tossed it into my mind when I was but a boy. Then he sat back in his chair, with a merry twinkle in his eyes, and watched carefully to see if I had brains enough to understand the full significance of what he'd said to me. When he saw that I had grasped the idea, he asked if I would be willing to spend twenty years or more preparing myself to take it to the world, to men and women who, without the secret, might go through life as failures. I said I would, and with Mr. Carnegie's cooperation, I have kept my promise. Editor's Comments in 1908, during a particularly downtime in the U.S. economy and with no money and no work, Napoleon Hill took a job as a writer for Bob Taylor's magazine. He was hired to write success stories about famous men. Although it would not provide much in the way of income, it offered Hill the opportunity to meet and profile the giants of industry and business, the first of whom was the creator of America's steel industry, multimillionaire Andrew Carnegie, who was to become Hill's mentor. Carnegie was so impressed by Hill's perceptive mind that following their three-hour interview he invited Hill to spend the weekend at his estate so they could continue the discussion. During the course of the next two days, Carnegie told Hill that he believed any person could achieve greatness if they understood the philosophy of success and the steps required to achieve it. It's a shame, he said that each new generation must find the way to success by trial and error when the principles are really clear-cut. Carnegie went on to explain his theory that his knowledge could be gained by interviewing those who had achieved greatness and then compiling the information and research into a comprehensive set of principles. He believed that it would take at least 20 years and that the result would be the world's first philosophy of individual achievement. He offered Hill the challenge, for no more compensation than that Carnegie would make the necessary introductions and cover travel expenses. It took Hill 29 seconds to accept Carnegie's proposal. Carnegie told him afterward that had it taken him more than 60 seconds to make the decision, he would have withdrawn the offer, for a man who cannot reach a decision promptly, once he has all the necessary facts, cannot be depended upon to carry through any decision he may make. It was through Hill's unwavering dedication that this book was eventually written. For detailed information on the life of Hill, read or listen to the audiobook of A Lifetime of Riches, The Biography of Napoleon Hill by Michael J. Ritt, Jr. and Kirk Landers. Michael Ritt worked as Hill's assistant for ten years and was the first employee of the Napoleon Hill Foundation where he served as executive director, secretary, and treasurer. The material in his book comes from his own personal knowledge of Hill, as well as from Hill's unpublished autobiography. That is the end of the editor's comment. This book, Think and Grow Rich, contains the Carnegie Secret, a secret that has been tested by thousands, now millions of people in almost every walk of life. It was Mr. Carnegie's idea that the magic formula, which gave him a stupendous fortune, ought to be placed within reach of people who do not have the time to investigate how others had made their money. It was his hope that I might test and demonstrate the soundness of the formula 
through the experience of men and women in every calling. He believed the formula should be taught in all public schools and colleges. He said that if it were properly taught, it would revolutionize the entire educational system, and the time spent in school could be reduced to less than half. In Chapter 4, On Faith, you will read the astounding story of the organization of the giant United States Steel Corporation. It was conceived and carried out by one of the young men through whom Mr. Carnegie proved that his formula will work for all who are ready for it. This single application of the secret, by Charles M. Schwab, made him a huge fortune in both money and opportunity. Roughly speaking, this particular application of the formula was worth $600 million. These facts give you a fair idea of what reading this book may bring to you, provided you know what it is that you want. Editor's Comment According to one method of calculation, through inflation alone, it would take approximately $20 in 2001 to buy what $1 would have bought in 1901. However, to find the contemporary equivalent value of $600 million is not simply a matter of multiplying by the increase in the cost of living. Although there are other factors and variables in calculating buying power, even by conservative estimates, the $600 million would translate into at least $12 billion at the beginning of the 21st century. That's the end of the editor's comment. The secret was passed on to thousands of men and women who have used it for their personal benefit. Some have made fortunes with it. Others have used it successfully in creating harmony in their homes. A clergyman used it so effectively that it brought him an income of upwards of $75,000 a year, approximately $1.5 million in contemporary terms. Arthur Nash a Cincinnati tailor used his near-bankrupt business as a guinea pig on which to test the formula. The business came to life and made a fortune for its owners. The experiment was so unique that newspapers and magazines gave it millions of dollars' worth of publicity. The secret was passed on to Stuart Austin Weir of Dallas, Texas. He was ready for it, so ready that he gave up his profession and studied law. Did he succeed? You'll read the answer in Chapter 6. Specialized Knowledge While I was the advertising manager of the LaSalle Extension University, I had the privilege of seeing J.G. Chaplin, president of the university, use the formula so effectively that he made LaSalle one of the great extension schools of this country. The secret is mentioned no fewer than a hundred times throughout this book. It has not been directly named, for it seems to work more successfully when it is merely left in sight, where those who are ready and searching for it, may pick it up. That is why Andrew Carnegie passed it to me without giving me its specific name. If you are ready to put it to use, you will recognize this secret at least once in every chapter, but you will not find an explanation of how you will know if you are ready. That would deprive you of much of the benefit you will receive when you make the discovery in your own way. If you have ever been discouraged, if you have had difficulties that took the very soul out of you, if you have tried and failed, if you were ever handicapped by illness or physical affliction, the story of my own son's discovery and use of the Carnegie formula may prove to be the oasis in the desert of lost hope for which you have been searching. This secret was extensively used by President Woodrow Wilson during the World War and by President Roosevelt during the Second World War. 
It was passed on to every soldier in the training received before going to the front. President Wilson told me it was a powerful factor in raising the funds needed for the war. A peculiar thing about this secret is that those who acquire and use it find themselves literally swept on to success. However, as is often pointed out in this book, there is no such thing as something for nothing. The secret cannot be had without paying a price, although the price is far less than its value. Another peculiarity is that the secret cannot be given away, and it cannot be purchased for money. Unless you are intentionally searching for the secret, you cannot have it at any price. That is because the secret comes in two parts, and in order for you to get it, one of those parts must already be in your possession. The secret will work for anyone who is ready for it. Education has nothing to do with it. Long before I was born, the secret had found its way into the possession of Thomas A. Edison, and he used it so intelligently that he became the world's leading inventor, although he had only three months of schooling. The secret was passed on to Edwin C. Barnes, a business associate of Mr. Edison's. He used it so effectively that he accumulated a great fortune and retired from active business while still a young man. You will find his story at the beginning of the next chapter. It should convince you that riches are not beyond your reach, and that no matter where you are in life, you can still be what you wish to be. Money, fame, recognition, and happiness can be had by you if you are ready and determined to have these blessings. How do I know these things? You should have the answer before you finish this book. You may find it in the very first chapter or on the last page. While I was doing the research that I had undertaken at Andrew Carnegie's request, I analyzed hundreds of well-known men. Many of them attributed the accumulation of their vast fortunes to the Carnegie secret. Among these men were Henry Ford, founder of the Ford Automobile Company. Ford started with no money and little education, yet became one of the most successful self-made businessmen in American history. William Wrigley, Jr., a traveling salesman who found that his customers liked the chewing gum he gave away as a premium better than the goods he sold, so he started his own company. John Wanamaker, known as the Merchant Prince, he created the world's first department store and was hailed for his innovations in marketing, customer service, and employee benefits. James J. Hill, known as the Empire Builder, he built the transcontinental Great Northern Railway encouraged homesteading in the West, then established shipping routes linking America to Asia. George S. Parker, a schoolteacher who grew tired of fixing his students' pens, he created a new design, founded the Parker Pen Company, and turned a simple idea into a fortune. E. M. Statler, the son of a poor pastor, he started as a bellboy and worked his way up until he was able to start his own chain of Statler Hotels, famous for their luxury and service with a smile. Henry L. Doherty Started at age 12 as an office boy for Columbia Gas, he went on to acquire 53 utilities companies and patented 140 innovations for natural gas and oil production. Cyrus H. K. Curtis Starting with a small agricultural weekly, Curtis turned it into Ladies Home Journal, created Saturday Evening Post, then assembled one of the largest newspaper empires. 
George Eastman. Inventor and founder of the Eastman Kodak Company, he created many of the innovations that popularized photography and transformed the motion picture industry. Charles M. Schwab, the right-hand man of Andrew Carnegie, he was president of Carnegie Steel Company, brokered the deal that formed U.S. Steel, and went on to found Bethlehem Steel. Theodore Roosevelt, 26th President of the United States from 1901 to 1909. John W. Davis, a lawyer and political leader, Davis was Solicitor General under President Woodrow Wilson and later appointed Ambassador to Great Britain. Albert Hubbard, philosopher, publisher of the Fra magazine, and founder of the Roy Crofters Artists Colony, Hubbard was also the author of many bestsellers, including A Message to Garcia. Wilbur Wright, a bicycle shop owner who, with his brother Orville, became the first Americans to fly heavier-than-air aircraft and pioneered the aviation industry. William Jennings Bryan, newspaper publisher, presidential nominee, Secretary of State under President William McKinley, but perhaps best known as the lawyer who defended creationism at the Scopes Monkey Trial. Dr. David Starr Jordan, educator, scientist, author of over 50 books, he was the nation's youngest university president at Indiana University and became the first president of Stanford University. J. Ogden Armour, inherited his family's meatpacking business, turned it into a conglomerate with more than 3,000 products, was an owner of the Chicago Cubs and a director of National City Bank and American International Corporation. Arthur Brisbane, a crusading journalist and syndicated columnist, Brisbane was sought after by every major news organization and was the most read and highest paid editorial writer of his day. Dr. Frank Gonzalez, a Chicago preacher who delivered such a powerful sermon, Philip D. Armour gave him a million dollars to start the Armour Institute of Technology, of which he became president. Daniel Willard, president of the B&O Railroad for more than 30 years, he was honored by having the city of Willard, Ohio, named for him. King Gillette, a traveling salesman and born tinkerer, Gillette was trying to shave on a moving train when he came up with the idea of the safety razor, which became the foundation of a corporate giant. Ralph A. Weeks, president of international correspondence schools, Weeks helped finance Napoleon Hill's Intrawall Institute, established to educate and rehabilitate prison inmates. Judge Daniel T. Wright, instructor at Georgetown Law School, where Napoleon Hill was studying when Bob Taylor's magazine gave him the assignment to write a profile of Andrew Carnegie. John D. Rockefeller With $1,000 in savings plus another $1,000 borrowed from his father, he started a kerosene company which he grew into the giant Standard Oil and one of the world's greatest fortunes. Thomas A. Edison Inventor and entrepreneur, he perfected the electric light bulb, the phonograph, the motion picture camera, and owned the rights to more than 1,000 patented inventions. Frank A. Vanderlip, a poor boy who became a journalist, social reformer, and self-made millionaire, he was president of the National City Bank, now Citibank, and assistant secretary of the Treasury. F. W. Woolworth, 
A clerk in a general store, he pioneered the idea of fixed-price selling and self-service and forever changed retail selling with a chain of Woolworth 5 and 10 cent stores. Colonel Robert A. Dollar Starting with a small schooner bought to haul lumber down the west coast, he built the Dollar Steamship Company, the largest fleet of luxury liners sailing under the U.S. flag. Edward A. Filene Founder of the Boston-based stores, he devised revolutionary methods of distribution and merchandising and became famous for the first bargain basement department. Edwin C. Barnes The only man Thomas Edison ever had as a partner, Barnes took Edison's failing dictaphone and sold it so successfully it became a fixture in offices and made him a multimillionaire. Arthur Nash a Cincinnati tailor who used his bankrupt business as a guinea pig for the Carnegie secret and was so successful the newspapers made him famous as Golden Rule Nash. Clarence Darrow Famed as a lawyer, public speaker, and defender of the underdog, Darrow is best known as the lawyer who defended teaching the theory of evolution at the Scopes Monkey Trial. Woodrow Wilson 28th President of the United States of America from 1913 to 1921. William Howard Taft, 27th President of the United States of America, from 1909 to 1913. Luther Burbank, world-renowned horticulturalist who introduced over 800 varieties of new plants in his effort to improve the quality of plants and thereby increase the world's food supply. Edward W. Buck, Although he had only six years schooling, by the age of twenty he was editor of Ladies' Home Journal, which he helped to build into the world's most widely circulated magazine. Frank A. Munsey, a telegraph operator who quit to launch Argosy magazine, then parlayed his fortune into a newspaper empire that included the Washington Times and the New York Herald. Albert H. Gary. Chairman of U.S. Steel, at the time the largest corporation in the world, Gary spearheaded the construction of its first major project, the Gary Work Steel Plant, and the city of Gary, Indiana. Dr. Alexander Graham Bell, best known as the inventor of the telephone, Bell also perfected recording devices, advances in aircraft, and was a co-founder of the National Geographic Society. John H. Patterson, President of National Cash Register, Patterson was known as an advertising visionary and a genius at motivating his sales force, which made NCR the leader in its field. Julius Rosenwald, a small manufacturer who foresaw the future of mail order, he bought 25% of Sears Roebuck and Company, and together with Richard Sears built it into an icon of American business. Stuart Austin Weir, a construction engineer Hill met in the Texas oil fields who, inspired by the Carnegie secret, went to law school after age 40 and also helped publish Napoleon Hill's magazine. Dr. Frank Crane, a noted psychologist, essayist, and author of the book Four-Minute Essays on subjects such as The Price of Liberty, Pragmatism, The Duty of the Rich, and How to Keep Friends. J.G. Chaplin, president of the LaSalle Extension University at the time Napoleon Hill worked in the university's advertising and sales department, where he first realized his talent for motivating people. 
Jennings Randolph. A congressman, then U.S. Senator from West Virginia, Randolph was a lifelong admirer of Napoleon Hill, and it was he who encouraged Hill to act as advisor to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. These names represent a small fraction of well-known Americans whose achievements, financial and otherwise, prove that those who understand and apply the Carnegie secret reach high positions in life. Editor's Comment As Napoleon Hill says, the preceding list includes only some of the more than 500 multimillionaires and extraordinarily successful individuals whom Napoleon Hill interviewed prior to writing Think and Grow Rich. It does not include the equally impressive list of people he came in contact with after the publication, nor does it include the names of those who did not have the opportunity to meet Napoleon Hill personally, but who attribute their success to having read this book. It is said that Napoleon Hill and Think and Grow Rich have made more millionaires than any other person in history. It might equally well be said that Napoleon Hill inspired more motivational experts than any other man in history. It is practically impossible to find a motivational speaker who does not draw upon Hill's work. His influence can be seen in the writings of his early peers, Dale Carnegie and Norman Vincent Peale. Later, successful authors and speakers such as W. Clement Stone, Og Mandino, and Earl Nightingale either worked directly with Napoleon Hill or with the Napoleon Hill Foundation. Echoes of Hill's principles can also be found in books by people as diverse as Wally Famous Amos, Mary Kay Ash, Ken Blanchard, Adelaide Bry, Chicken Soup for the Soul authors Jack Canfield and Mark Victor Hansen, Debbie Fields, Shakti Gawain, John Gray, Susan Jeffers, Bruce Jenner, Charlie Tremendous Jones, Tommy Lasorda, Art Linkletter, Joan London, Dr. Maxwell Maltz, James Redfield, Dr. Bernie Siegel, Jose Silva, Brian Tracy, Lillian Vernon, and Dennis Waitley. Stephen Covey, author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, has often spoken of the influence of Napoleon Hill. Anthony Robbins, arguably the most successful motivational author and speaker at the beginning of the 21st century, has acknowledged Napoleon Hill as a personal hero. That is the end of the editor's comment. I have never known anyone who was inspired to use the Carnegie secret who did not achieve noteworthy success. On the other hand, I have never known anyone to distinguish themselves or to accumulate riches of any consequence without possession of the secret. From these two facts, I draw the conclusion that the secret is more important for self-determination than anything you receive through what is popularly known as education. Somewhere, as you read, the secret will jump from the page and stand boldly before you, if you are ready for it. When it appears, you will recognize it. Whether you receive the sign in the first chapter or the last, stop for a moment when it presents itself and make a note of the time and place. You will want to remember, because it will mark the most important turning point of your life. Remember, too, as you go through the book, that it deals with facts and not with fiction. Its purpose is to convey a great universal truth through which you, if you are ready, may learn what to do and how to do it. You will also receive the needed stimulus to make a start. As a final word of preparation, 
May I offer one brief suggestion which may provide a clue how the Carnegie secret may be recognized? It is this. Achievement and all earned riches have their beginning in an idea. If you are ready for the secret, you already possess one half of it. Therefore, you will recognize the other half the moment it reaches your mind. Editor's Comments Unlike much of the business and motivational literature available, Think and Grow Rich is not written for readers to skip around from chapter to chapter, taking a concept here and an idea there to solve the problem of the moment. This book is written as a carefully integrated whole, to be read in its entirety, from beginning to end. Concepts that are introduced in one chapter recur in other chapters where their meaning and significance rely upon the reader having already assimilated the earlier knowledge. The chapters are designed to build upon one another in such a way that every word is to be read, every idea is to be considered, and every concept is to be understood and absorbed. Think and Grow Rich is often called the first philosophy of personal achievement, and a philosophy is more than a collection of solutions to business problems. A philosophy is a system of principles that will guide your thoughts and actions, and provide you with a code of ethics and a standard of values. Think and Grow Rich will not just change what you think, it will literally change the way you think. In preparing this new and updated edition, every aspect of Think and Grow Rich has been analyzed to ensure its relevance to the current business climate. In those instances where material might be considered dated or out of step with contemporary practices, the original text has been updated or augmented with relevant new material. A hallmark of the original edition of Think and Grow Rich is that in every chapter Napoleon Hill cites real-life examples based on his own first-hand knowledge of America's most successful self-made multimillionaires. In this edition, every one of Hill's stories has been retained, and the editors have added contemporary examples and modern parallels which clearly demonstrate that Hill's principles are as up-to-date as today and still guiding those who succeed. In addition to contemporary examples, where the editors felt it would be of interest to the reader, we have included marginal notes that provide relevant information about recent developments. Where applicable, we have also suggested books or other materials that complement various aspects of Napoleon Hill's philosophy. On a more technical note, the editors have approached the written text as we would that of a living author when we encountered what modern grammarians would consider run-on sentences, outdated punctuation, or other matters of form, we opted for contemporary usage. Those readers familiar with earlier editions will note that the chapter numbers have been changed in this edition. Originally, Think and Grow Rich began with an unnumbered chapter, a word from the author. In this edition, that text appears as Chapter 1, and is renamed The Secret of Success. The chapters that follow are renumbered sequentially and proceed in their original order. The chapter that was previously titled The Mystery of Sex Transmutation has been retitled Sexuality, Charisma and Creativity, and the text has been restructured and annotated to reflect the role of women in contemporary society. All editorial commentary is clearly set off in a font and style that is different from the original text. This is the end of the editor's comments.
Both poverty and riches are the offspring of thought. Chapter 2 Thoughts Are Things The Man Who Thought His Way Into Partnership with Thomas A. Edison Truly, thoughts are things, and powerful things, when they are mixed with definiteness of purpose, persistence, and a burning desire for their translation into riches or other material objects. Some years ago, Edwin C. Barnes discovered how true it is that you really can think and grow rich. His discovery did not come about at one sitting. It came little by little, beginning with a burning desire to become a business associate of the great Thomas Edison. One of the chief characteristics of Barnes' desire was that it was definite. He wanted to work with Edison, not for him. Pay close attention to the story of how he turned his desire into reality, and you'll have a better understanding of the principles that lead to riches. When this desire, or this thought, first flashed into his mind, he was in no position to act upon it. Two problems stood in his way. He did not know Mr. Edison, and he did not have enough money to buy a train ticket to West Orange, New Jersey, where the famed Edison Laboratory was located. These problems would have discouraged the majority of people from making any attempt to carry out the desire. But his was no ordinary desire. The Inventor and the Tramp Edwin C. Barnes presented himself at Mr. Edison's laboratory and announced that he had come to go into business with the inventor. Years later, in speaking about that first meeting, Mr. Edison said about Barnes, he stood there before me, looking like an ordinary tramp, but there was something in the expression of his face which conveyed the impression that he was determined to get what he had come after. I had learned from years of experience with men that when a man really desires a thing so deeply that he is willing to stake his entire future on a single turn of the wheel in order to get it, he is sure to win. I gave him the opportunity he asked for, because I saw he had made up his mind to stand by until he succeeded. Subsequent events proved that no mistake was made. It could not have been the young man's appearance that got him his start in the Edison office. That was definitely against him. It was what he thought that counted. Barnes did not get his partnership with Edison on his first interview. What he did get was a chance to work in the Edison offices at a very nominal wage. Months went by. Nothing happened to bring nearer the goal that Barnes had set as his definite major purpose. But something important was happening in Barnes' mind. He was constantly intensifying his desire to become the business associate of Edison. Psychologists have correctly said, when one is truly ready for a thing, it puts in its appearance. Barnes was ready for a business association with Edison, and he was determined to remain ready until he got what he was seeking. He did not say to himself, Ah, well, what's the use? I guess I'll change my mind and try for a salesman's job. But he did say, I came here to go into business with Edison, and I'll accomplish my goal if it takes the remainder of my life. He meant it. What a different story people would tell if only they would adopt a definite purpose and stand by that purpose until it had time to become an all-consuming obsession. Maybe young Barnes did not know it at the time, but his bulldog determination and his persistence in focusing on a single desire 
was destined to mow down all opposition and bring him the opportunity he was seeking. When the opportunity came, it appeared in a different form and from a different direction than Barnes had expected. That is one of the tricks of opportunity. It has a sly habit of slipping in by the back door, and often it comes disguised in the form of misfortune or temporary defeat. Perhaps this is why so many people fail to recognize opportunity. Mr. Edison had just perfected a new device, known at that time as the Edison Dictating Machine. His salesmen were not enthusiastic about the machine. They did not believe it could be sold without great effort. Barnes saw his opportunity. It had crawled in quietly, hidden in a queer-looking machine that interested no one but Barnes and the inventor. Barnes knew he could sell the Edison dictating machine, and he told Edison so. Edison decided to give him his chance. And Barnes did sell the machine. In fact, he sold it so successfully that Edison gave him a contract to distribute and market it all over the nation. Out of that business association, Barnes made himself rich in money, but he did something infinitely greater. He proved that you really can think and grow rich. How much actual cash that original desire of Barnes was worth to him, I have no way of knowing. Perhaps it brought him two or three million dollars. Editor's Comment Three million dollars in the early years of the twentieth century would be comparable to more than fifty million dollars in terms of buying power at the beginning of the twenty-first century. This is the end of the editor's comment. But the amount becomes insignificant compared with the greater asset he acquired, the definite knowledge that an intangible impulse of thought can be transmuted into material rewards by the application of known principles. Barnes literally thought himself into a partnership with the great Edison. He thought himself into a fortune. He had nothing to start with except knowing what he wanted and the determination to stand by that desire until he realized it. Three Feet from Gold One of the most common causes of failure is the habit of quitting when you are overtaken by temporary defeat. Every person is guilty of this mistake at one time or another. During the gold rush days, an uncle of my friend R.U. Darby was caught by gold fever, and he went west to Colorado to dig and grow rich. He had never heard that more gold has been mined from the thoughts of men than has ever been taken from the earth. He staked a claim and went to work with pick and shovel. After weeks of labor, he was rewarded by the discovery of the shining ore. He needed machinery to bring the ore to the surface. Quietly, he covered up the mine and returned to his home in Williamsburg, Maryland. He told his relatives and a few neighbors about the strike. They got together the money for the machinery and had it shipped. R.U. Darby decided to join his uncle, and they went back to work the mine. The first car of ore was mined and shipped to a smelter. The returns proved they had one of the richest mines in Colorado. A few more cars of that ore would clear their debts. Then would come the big killing in profits. Down went the drills. Up went the hopes of Darby and Uncle. Then something happened. The vein of gold ore disappeared. They had come to the end of the rainbow, and the pot of gold was no longer there. They drilled on, desperately trying to pick up the vein again, all to no avail. 
Finally, they decided to quit. They sold the machinery to a junkman for a few hundred dollars and took the train back home. The junkman called in a mining engineer to look at the mine and do a little calculating. The engineer advised that the project had failed because the owners were not familiar with fault lines. His calculations showed that the vein would be found just three feet from where the Darbys had stopped drilling. And that is exactly where it was found. The junkman took millions of dollars in ore from the mine because he knew enough to seek expert counsel before giving up. Long afterward, Mr. Darby recouped his loss many times over when he made the discovery that desire can be transmuted into gold. The discovery came after he went into the business of selling life insurance. Never forgetting that he lost a huge fortune because he stopped three feet from gold, Darby profited by the experience in his newly chosen field. He simply said to himself, I stopped three feet from gold, but I will never stop because men say no when I ask them to buy insurance. Darby became one of a small group of men who sell over a million dollars in life insurance annually. He owed his stickability to the lesson he learned from his quitability in the gold mining business. Before success comes in anyone's life, that person is sure to meet with much temporary defeat, and perhaps some failure. When defeat overtakes a person, the easiest and most logical thing to do is to quit. That is exactly what the majority of people do. More than 500 of the most successful people this country has ever known told me their greatest success came just one step beyond the point at which defeat had overtaken them. Failure is a trickster with a keen sense of irony and cunning. It takes great delight in tripping you just when success is almost within reach. Editor's Comments Napoleon Hill's Creed Every failure brings with it the seed of an equivalent success was the inspiration for entrepreneur and motivational speaker Wayne Allen Root to write his book, The Joy of Failure. Published in the late 1990s, it not only tells Wayne's personal story of using his failures as stepping stones to success, he also recounts stories from other successful people which prove that the rich and famous got to be that way only because of what they learned from their failures. People such as Jack Welch, the hugely successful CEO of General Electric, who early in his career failed dramatically when a plastics plant for which he was responsible blew up. Billionaire Charles Schwab was a failure at school and university, flunking basic English twice due to a learning disability, and then failed on Wall Street more than once before he thought of the idea that grew to make him very rich indeed. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Oprah Winfrey, Bill Clinton, Stephen Jobs, Donald Trump, and a host of other equally well-known achievers all had to fail in order to learn the lessons that ultimately made them successes. Every one of them was a failure, but none of them was defeated. Charles F. Kettering, who patented more than 200 inventions, including the automobile ignition, the spark plug, Freon for air conditioners, and the automatic transmission, said, From the time a person is six years old until he graduates from college, he has to take three or four examinations a year. If he flunks once, he is out. But an inventor is almost always failing. He tries and fails maybe a thousand times.
If he succeeds once, then he's in. These two things are diametrically opposite. We often say that the biggest job we have is to teach a newly hired employee how to fail intelligently. We have to train him to experiment over and over and to keep on trying and failing until he learns what will work. Failures are just practice shots. This is the end of the editor's comment. A 50-cent lesson in persistence. Shortly after Mr. Darby received his degree from the University of Hard Knocks, he witnessed something that proved to him that no does not necessarily mean no. One afternoon, he was helping his uncle grind wheat in an old-fashioned mill. The uncle operated a large farm on which a number of sharecropper farmers lived. Quietly, the door was opened, and a small child, the daughter of a tenant, walked in and took her place near the door. The uncle looked up, saw the child, and barked at her roughly, "'What do you want?' Meekly, the child replied, "'My mom says to send her fifty cents.' "'I'll not do it,' the uncle retorted. "'Now you run on home.' But she did not move. The uncle went ahead with his work, not noticing that she did not leave. When he looked up again and saw her still standing there, he said, I told you to go on home. Now go or I'll take a switch to you. But she did not budge. The uncle dropped a sack of grain he was about to pour into the mill hopper and started toward the child. Darby held his breath. He knew his uncle had a fierce temper. When the uncle reached the spot where the child was standing, she quickly stepped forward one step, looked up into his eyes, and screamed at the top of her voice, My mom's got to have that fifty cents! The uncle stopped, looked at her for a minute, put his hand in his pocket, took out half a dollar, and gave it to her. The child took the money and slowly backed toward the door, never taking her eyes off the man whom she had just conquered. After she had gone, the uncle sat down on a box and looked out the window into space for more than ten minutes. He was pondering, with awe, over the whipping he had just taken. Mr. Darby, too, was doing some thinking. This was the first time in all his experience that he had seen a child deliberately master an adult. How did she do it? What happened to his uncle that caused him to lose his fierceness and become as docile as a lamb? What strange power did this child use that made her master of the situation? These questions flashed into Darby's mind, but he did not find the answer until years later when he told me the story. Strangely, the story of this unusual experience was told to me in the old mill on the very spot where the uncle took his whipping. As we stood there in that musty old mill, Mr. Darby repeated the story and finished by asking, What can you make of it? What strange power did that child use that so completely whipped my uncle? The answer to his question will be found in the principles described in this book. The answer is full and complete. It contains enough details and instructions for you to understand and apply the same force that the little child accidentally stumbled upon. Keep your mind alert, and you will learn exactly what strange power came to the rescue of the child. You may catch a glimpse of the power in this chapter, or it may flash into your mind in some later chapter. If you stay alert to the possibility, 
somewhere you will find the idea that will quicken your receptive powers and place at your command this same irresistible power. It may come in the form of a single idea, or it may come as a complete plan or a purpose. It may even cause you to go back over your past experiences of failure or defeat, and in doing so, it may bring to the surface some lesson by which you can regain all that you lost through defeat. After I had explained to Mr. Darby the power unwittingly used by the little child, he mentally retraced his thirty years as a life insurance salesman. As he did so, it became clear to him that his success was due, in no small degree, to the lesson he had learned from the child. Mr. Darby pointed out, Every time a prospect tried to bow me out without buying, I saw that child standing there in the old mill, her big eyes glaring in defiance, and I said to myself, I've got to make this sale. The better portion of all sales I have made were made after people had said no. He also recalled his mistake in having stopped only three feet from gold. But, he said, that experience was a blessing in disguise. It taught me to keep on keeping on, no matter how hard the going may be, a lesson I needed to learn before I could succeed in anything. Mr. Darby's experiences were commonplace and simple enough, yet they held the answer to his destiny in life. In fact, to him the experiences were as important as life itself, and he was able to profit from these two important experiences because he analyzed them and found the lesson they taught. But what if you don't see the events of your life as being experiences of such profound significance? And what about the young person who doesn't yet have even minor failures to analyze? Where and how will they learn the art of converting defeats into the stepping stones to opportunity? That is exactly why this book was written, to answer those questions. To convey my answer, I have constructed thirteen principles. These principles work individually or together as catalysts. The specific answer that you are looking for may already be in your own mind. Reading these principles may be the catalyst that causes your answer to suddenly come to you as an idea, a plan, or a purpose. One sound idea is all you need to achieve success. These thirteen principles contain the best and most practical ways and means of creating ideas. Success Consciousness Before I go any further in the description of these principles, you should know this. When riches begin to come, they come so quickly and in such great abundance that you will wonder where they've been hiding during all those lean years. This is an astounding statement especially when you take into consideration the popular belief that riches come only to those who work hard and long. When you begin to think and grow rich, you will observe that riches begin with a state of mind, with definiteness of purpose, with little or no hard work. What you need to know now is how to acquire the state of mind that will attract riches. I spent twenty-five years researching the answer to that question because I, too, wanted to know how wealthy men become that way. What you will learn is that as soon as you master the principles of this philosophy and begin to apply those principles, your financial status will begin to improve. Everything you touch will begin to transmute itself into an asset for your benefit. 
Impossible? Not at all. One of the main weaknesses the average person suffers is too much familiarity with the word impossible. We know all the rules that will not work. We know all the things that cannot be done. This book was written for those who seek the rules that have made others successful and are willing to stake everything on those rules. Success comes to those who become success conscious. Failure comes to those who allow themselves to become failure conscious. The object of this book is to help you learn the art of changing your mind from failure consciousness to success consciousness. Another weakness is the habit of measuring everything and everyone by your own impressions and beliefs. Some of you reading this will have trouble believing that you can think and grow rich because your thought habits have been steeped in poverty, misery, failure, and defeat. This kind of thinking reminds me of the story about the man who came from China to study at the University of Chicago. One day, President Harper met this young man on campus and stopped to chat with him for a few minutes. He asked what had impressed him as being the most noticeable characteristic of the American people. Why, the student exclaimed, the unusual shape of your eyes. It's all a matter of perspective and habit. The same is true of your belief in what a person can achieve. If you have formed the habit of seeing life only from your own perspective, you may make the mistake of believing that your limitations are in fact the proper measure of limitations. The Impossible Ford V8 Motor When Henry Ford decided to produce his famous V8 motor, he chose to build an engine with the entire eight cylinders cast in one block. Ford instructed his engineers to produce a design for the engine. The design was drawn up on paper, but the engineers agreed to a man that it was simply impossible to cast an eight-cylinder engine block in one piece. Ford said, produce it anyway. But they replied, it's impossible. Go ahead, Ford commanded, and stay on the job until you succeed no matter how much time is required. So the engineers went ahead. Six months went by. Nothing happened. Another six months passed, and still nothing. The engineers tried every conceivable plan to carry out the orders, but the thing seemed out of the question. Impossible. At the end of the year, Ford again checked with his engineers, and again they told him they had found no way to carry out his orders. Go right ahead, said Ford. I want it, and I'll have it. They went ahead. And then, as if by a stroke of magic, the secret was discovered. The Ford determination had won once more. Henry Ford was a success because he understood and applied the principles of success. One of these principles is desire, knowing clearly what you want. Remember this Ford story as you continue reading this book. Pick out the lines in which the secrets of his stupendous achievement have been described. If you do this, if you can put your finger on those particular principles that made Henry Ford rich, you may equal his achievements in almost any calling for which you are suited. Editor's Comments To those readers who may interpret Ford's actions as nothing more than obstinacy, the editors would point out that he was employing a technique that has become a common part of strategic planning in many industries, including aerospace, computers, medicine, and the military.
When launching large, complicated, long-term projects, the planners often know that at certain points along the way, they will need components that simply do not yet exist. The fact that at the beginning there is no way to get from A to B does not deter them. There are many parts of the project they can get started on now, and they just assume that by the time they get to the point where they will need a technology or a device, they will have solved the problem of making it, and they have been proven right time and again. Stated simply, the technique is to clearly know what you want to accomplish, have faith in your ability to do it, and persist until you have accomplished your goal. This is the end of the editor's comments. Why you are the master of your fate. When the famed English poet William Henley wrote the prophetic lines, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, he should have informed us that the reason we are the masters of our fate, the captains of our souls, is that we have the power to control our thoughts. He should have told us that it is because in some way our brains become magnetized with the dominating thoughts that we hold in our minds. And it is as though our magnetized minds attract to us the forces, the people, and the circumstances of life that are in sync with our dominating thoughts. He should have told us that before we can accumulate riches in great abundance, we must magnetize our minds with intense desire for riches. That we must become money-conscious until the desire for money drives us to create definite plans for acquiring it. But, being a poet, Henley contented himself by stating a great truth in poetic form, leaving those who followed him to interpret the philosophical meaning of his lines. Little by little, the truth has unfolded itself, until I have come to know with certainty that the principles described in this book hold the secret of mastery over our economic fate. Principles that can change your destiny. We are now ready to examine the first of these principles. And as we do, I ask you to maintain a spirit of open-mindedness. Remember, as you read, that these principles are not my invention. Nor are they the invention of any one person. These principles have worked for literally millions of people. You, too, can put them to work for you and your own enduring benefit. You will find it easy not hard to do. Some years ago I delivered the commencement address at Salem College in Salem, West Virginia. I emphasized with so much intensity the need to have a burning desire that one of the members of the graduating class became completely convinced and made it a cornerstone of his own philosophy. That young man became a congressman and an important factor in President Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration. He wrote me a letter in which he so clearly stated his opinion of the principle of desire outlined in the next chapter that I have chosen to publish his letter as an introduction to that chapter. It gives you an idea of the rewards to come. My dear Napoleon, My service as a member of Congress having given me an insight into the problems of men and women, I am writing to offer a suggestion which may become helpful to thousands of worthy people. In 1922, you delivered the commencement address at Salem College when I was a member of the graduating class. In that address, you planted in my mind an idea which has been responsible for the opportunity I now have to serve the people of my state and will be responsible, in a very large measure, for whatever success I may have in the future. 
I recall, as though it were yesterday, the marvelous description you gave of the method by which Henry Ford, with but little schooling, without a dollar, with no influential friends, rose to great heights. I made up my mind then, even before you had finished your speech, that I would make a place for myself, no matter how many difficulties I had to surmount. Thousands of young people will finish their schooling this year and within the next few years. Every one of them will be seeking just such a message of practical encouragement as the one I received from you. They will want to know where to turn, what to do to get started in life. You can tell them, because you have helped to solve the problems of so many, many people. There are thousands of people in America today who would like to know how they can convert ideas into money. People who must start from scratch, without finances, and recoup their losses. If anyone can help them, you can. If you publish the book, I would like to own the first copy that comes from the press, personally autographed by you. With best wishes, believe me, cordially yours, Jennings Randolph. Since that time in 1922, I watched Jennings Randolph rise to become one of the nation's leading airline executives, a great inspirational speaker, and a United States Senator from West Virginia. Thirty-five years after I made that speech, it was my pleasure to return to Salem College in 1957 and deliver the baccalaureate sermon. At that time, I received an honorary Doctor of Literature degree from Salem College. Editor's Comments as you begin the next chapter, the editors would like to reinforce the earlier statement that what you are reading is not just a collection of theories out of which you can cherry-pick what you like. The thirteen principles of success were proven by the real-life experiences of the long list of famous successful people cited earlier by Napoleon Hill. His techniques are also practiced and endorsed by the contemporary experts and authors whom the editors mentioned following Hill's list. More than 60 million people have purchased copies of the book that you are now holding in your hands. If this book has proven to be that successful, surely you owe it to yourself to give it every chance to work for you, too. Read it. Don't question it. Do it. If you don't, if you think that you know better than Napoleon Hill, if you decide to pick and choose the parts that you will believe or follow, then, if you don't succeed, you will never know if your failure lies with this book or with you. This is the end of the editor's comments. Whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe, it can achieve. Chapter 3 Desire The Starting Point of All Achievement the first step toward riches. When Edwin C. Barnes climbed down from the freight train in West Orange, New Jersey, he may have resembled a tramp, but his thoughts were those of a king. As he made his way from the railroad tracks to Thomas A. Edison's office, his mind was at work. He saw himself standing in Edison's presence. He heard himself asking Mr. Edison for an opportunity to carry out the one consuming obsession of his life a burning desire to become the business associate of the great inventor. Barnes' desire was not a hope. It was not a wish. It was a pulsating desire which transcended everything else. It was definite. 
A few years later, Edwin C. Barnes again stood before Edison in the same office where he first met the inventor. This time, his desire had been translated into reality. He was in business with Edison. The dominating dream of his life had become a reality. Barnes succeeded because he chose a definite goal, placed all his energy, all his willpower, all his effort. He put everything he had into achieving that goal. Five years passed before the chance he had been seeking made its appearance. To everyone except himself, he appeared to be just another cog in the Edison business wheel. But in Edwin Barnes' own mind, he was the partner of Edison every minute from the very day that he first went to work there. It is a remarkable illustration of the power of a definite desire. Barnes won his goal because he wanted to be a business associate of Mr. Edison's more than he wanted anything else. He created a plan by which to attain that purpose, and he burned all bridges behind him. He stood by his desire until it became the dominating obsession of his life, and finally, a fact. When he went to West Orange, he did not say to himself, I will try to induce Edison to give me a job of some sort. He said, I will see Edison and put him on notice that I have come to go into business with him. He did not say, I will keep my eyes open for another opportunity in case I fail to get what I want in the Edison organization. He said, There is one thing in this world that I am determined to have, and that is a business association with Thomas A. Edison. I will burn all bridges behind me and stake my entire future on my ability to get what I want. He left himself no possible way of retreat. He had to win or perish. That is all there is to the barn story of success. Allow yourself no retreat. A long while ago, a great warrior faced a situation in which he had to make a decision that ensured his success on the battlefield. He was about to send his armies against a powerful foe whose men outnumbered his.